Let me invite you to remain standing as we want now to begin to study Luke chapter 2. So out of adoration of God who speaks to us perfectly and powerfully through His Word, you can grab your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, I'd invite you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that are in front of you and turn to page 857. Uh, just four weeks ago, we began what will be a long study of expositions through Luke's Gospel. And today we finally arrive at Luke's account of the Christmas story as we want to look at verses 1 through 20. So let me go ahead and read them for us. And I do want to pray briefly for our study of God's Word together and then we will begin. So let's hear now as God speaks to us the good news of His Son, Jesus Christ. In those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear." And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying God and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? Grass withers, the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together. Father, we do praise you that you are a God who speaks to us, that your word is indeed perfect, that it is powerful for our lives. So Lord, we pray that you would send the Spirit among us to to open our eyes to behold wondrous things from this word, that you would open our hearts as well, that we might keep it with our whole lives. Give us joy, give us delight, give us faith in hearing your word. Give me words of Faithfulness, clarity, and boldness to preach as I ought, as a dying man unto dying people. 
And Lord, we pray all of this for your glory and our good in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Amen. You may be seated. It was 113 years ago uh, that Christmas Eve broke over the battlefields in World War I, fields that would eventually claim some 15 million different lives. And as night descended on the Western Front, one British soldier wrote home to his parents and said, there was frost everywhere on the ground, a beautiful moon lit the night, and it was as though everything was white. And historians ever since have debated the specifics of what happened next. No one knows exactly how it came about. No one knows exactly what it looked like across the trenches. But some 100,000 different troops, maybe by festive magic, the historians have said, began to sing a song. And troops that just hours before had pointed their guns at one another in battle could now be found in no man's land talking to each other, exchanging gifts, telling stories, all because troops began to sing an old Christmas carol in German, some in French, some in English, Silent Night. And it was a gospel carol that brought peace on the battlefield for, if nothing less, just one night. And this morning we want to give our attention to another night so long ago that proved to be not so silent. Luke's famous account of the Christmas story in chapter 2 of his gospel is a story of another gospel carol that was sung in the middle of the night. But as we shall soon see, this gospel carol was one of everlasting peace on earth. So I pray that God would give us all ears to hear this morning as we give our attention to what is, what might just be the most astonishing story in all of Scripture. So kids, I wonder what you think is the most fantastic part of Christmas. Maybe it's the special songs we get to sing every year. Maybe it's a particular Christmas dessert that your mother makes. Maybe it's the lights that you can see on the street. Or of course, maybe it's just the presents that you hope to receive later on today or tomorrow morning. But what we want to see this morning is The fantastic part of Christmas is the wonder that God's Son lay in a manger. That the eternal God was born of a virgin Mary. And it's significant, it's so significant in fact, that God sends a heavenly chorus to give us detail on why it's so important for our lives. So the simple theme that we want to look at this morning is is how in the fullness of time, God's son was born and lay in a manger. Maybe you noticed as we were reading the text just a few minutes ago how three times Luke emphasized the fact that this baby king lay in a manger. Why might the fact that he lay in a feeding trough for animals be so significant for us? Well, we want to discover that together this morning. So our text is... A birth story, and like every birth story, it has its three central elements or parts to the story. First, you have the birth, then you have the birth announcement, and then you have reactions to the birth announcement. So I have just three simple headings that hopefully can guide our attention 
through the text this morning. First, we want to see the humble Savior in verses 1 through 7. Then verses 8 through 14, we want to hear the peaceful army. And then verse 15 through 20, we want to join the joyful shepherds. And maybe you're in here this morning. Maybe you come seeking to discover why it is that Christians around the world make such a big deal about Christmas. I hope that you might see why we believe this story is so wonderful. And then for the first time, you might truly know and believe the fantastic news that God the Son was born as a baby and lay in a manger. So first of all, we want to see the humble Savior. Students, it's important to note in verse 1 that Luke doesn't say once upon a time. As though what comes next is so fantastic, it can't possibly be believed. Remember, Luke is a, is a very careful historian. He's like an investigative journalist. And so what he front loads his story with are historical markers that someone can go check out and discover that they, in fact, are true and that the story that follows must be true as well because notice how he sets the scene in verse one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, Caesar Augustus was the grandnephew of the famous Julius Caesar. He ruled the Roman world for 44 years with such success that he ushered in what is known as the Pax Romana, this unprecedented era of peace in the Roman Empire. And in fact, Caesar Augustus was the first Roman ruler to be called an emperor. He assigned to himself the status of a son of God. He was believed to be a divine person. And even modern inscriptions of the time hailed him as the savior of the world. And probably, because of greed, historians are a little bit uncertain as to the motive behind this census, this registration that he decreed, but probably because of his greed, he decrees everyone needs to go home because they were going to have to pay a particular tax to the empire, and so he was interested in getting more money from his famous cities, but also those far-flung villages that few people gave attention to, such as the village, the city of Bethlehem. And some of you might know how the Old Testament prophesied that the Redeemer of God's people was going to be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 and following tells us such. Now the problem for us is, we know from Luke's first chapter, is that Mary is bearing this baby Redeemer. She's going to give birth to God's Redeemer. Yet Mary is not in Bethlehem. Joseph is not in Bethlehem. So how is it that God's prophecy of so long ago is going to be fulfilled, that he will be true to his word. Well, little did did Caesar Augustus know, this purported son of God, said to be the savior of the world, that his decree of a census had in fact been decreed before the foundations of the world by the only God in the universe, that from this decree, the only savior of the world would be born in Bethlehem. Because notice what happens as a result of the decree. Verse four and following, Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. 
Do you look out on the governments of the world today, political leaders even in our nation with distress? It's easy to do so, isn't it? So much in world politics seems so wrong. But do you not see how from this Christmas story in our text, we are reminded that God works all things, even the decrees of pagan rulers for the good of his people and the fulfillment of his promises? He is the sovereign good God who fulfills his word. One of the favorite books we have at our house for our five little children to read this time of year is called Song of the Stars. It's this beautiful, moving, poetic story about these animals all throughout creation who are racing to Bethlehem to see heaven's son sleeping under the stars that he made. And as they're making this journey throughout the book, they come across other animals and they say, it's time. It's time. Which is exactly what happens, notice in verse 6. While they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for Mary to give birth. Galatians chapter 4 calls this the fullness of time when Jesus was born. That every moment in redemptive history until this point had been building to this moment when God's Redeemer would be born, would come in order to save his people. It's as though the Father, ruling from heaven, looked out upon the heavenly host and said to the angels and the heavenly creatures, it's time. And so, notice the humble recounting of the birth in verse 7. Mary gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. It's strikingly simple, isn't it? It ought to strike us in some ways that that Luke actually doesn't tell us that much about the many legends that have arisen out of this Christmas story. We don't know exactly where Jesus was born. It could have been in a cave. It could have been in a stable with animals. It could have been in an ordinary room in one of Joseph's family members' homes. For Luke, the only important things that we know is that he was born, he was wrapped in swaddling cloths, and he lay in a manger. So important are those things that I do want to even return to them at the end, but for now we want to hasten on to hear the peaceful army, because something else is going on this night, isn't it, in the Christmas story? Look at verse 8 and 9. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. What follows in the next couple verses is the story of one of the greatest, most famous supporting actors in all the Bible. This angel who speaks the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ on this first Christmas night. And we don't even know the angel's name. Uh, Maybe you're like me and want to know, who is it that showed up on this midnight clear so long ago? Was it Gabriel, like we saw in chapter one? Was it the great general of God's angelic armies? Was it Michael? Well, we don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. It's as though he simply wants us to know that the identity of the gospel messenger 
is far less important than the gospel message itself. The messenger is not important. The message is what is so valuable for us. And what a wonderful message it is. Notice as he begins in verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. You know, kids, I'm sure that none of you read Greek, but if you could, what you would see in the Greek text is that the shepherds had mega fear. And the angel shows up and gives him mega joy. For those of you that often hear the preaching of the gospel, that's exactly what this messenger of God comes to do is preach the gospel. What does it tend to do within your heart? Does it calm your fears? Does it excite your joys? Oh, we even see that this gospel message is a universal one because look at how the verse ends in verse 10. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Even the fact that the angel announces the gospel first to shepherds proves the point of the universal intent of the gospel. Because outside of lepers, the only class in early Jewish society that were lower on the totem pole would have been shepherds. Uh, shepherds were believed to be rejects and outcasts in society. They spent all of their time working outside with animals, which were unclean, so that meant they were ceremonially unclean and unable to perform the religious services of the day. They were commonly believed to be thieves and nothing less than liars. To such an extent, a shepherd's testimony was never permissible in a law court, because surely it wasn't going to be true. And yet, who hears the gospel first? The shepherds. Which gives us a signal of something that we'll see over and over throughout Luke's gospel, is that Christ comes and he's going to turn everything upside down. That the insignificant people of the world are actually quite significant in God's eyes. That those that the world has forgotten, God remembers. That the gospel is for all people. That it is for the rich, but it's also for the poor. It's for the strong, yes. It's also for the weak. It's for the famous, the forgotten, the old and the young. This is good news for all people. But the angel hasn't told us yet what exactly the good news is. Maybe you've been around Christians or churches before and you've often heard this word gospel used. It's a word that just means good news, but what exactly is good about the good news? I'll look at verse 11 as the angel tells us. For unto you is born this day in the city of David. I hope you've noticed before, as you read this text, that the angel doesn't do what most people would do with a birth announcement. He doesn't say, unto Mary and Joseph is born this day, but unto you, shepherds, is born this day. And now through his word and spirit, he says, unto you sitting in this room at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in 2017, unto you is born in the city of David. A savior who is Christ the Lord. So three titles that give meaning to the good news. First, he's Savior. There was popular expectation at this time in Jewish culture that the Redeemer was about to show up, the Savior of God's people. It was commonly believed that this Savior would show up. He was going to overthrow all of Israel's enemies, finally restore Israel to worldwide prominence again. Even the disciples themselves seemed to think that's what Jesus is going to do. Just go home later this afternoon and read their question to him in Acts chapter 1. 
But what we know from our study even in Luke so far is that this Savior comes with quite a different purpose. You might even look back to chapter 1, verse 77, which we read last week, studied together, where we find out that this Savior would bring salvation in the forgiveness of sins. So students, I hope you learn a lesson, if you haven't learned it already, that Jesus came to save his people. But know now before you jump into the fullness of we hope will be a joyful adult life, that he didn't come to save you from sorrow. He didn't come to save you from suffering, difficulty, or trouble. He came to save you from your greatest enemy, which is sin. And he's also Christ, which is not his last name, as we often tend to think about. It's simply the Greek word for Messiah, which means anointed one. That Jesus is the final prophet, priest, and king, anointed with God's Holy Spirit to do what God has set out for him to do. And he's also Lord. To Jesus belongs all rule, all authority, all the power, all dominion. Jesus alone is sovereign. And kids, if you ever hear that word sovereign, what you need to know is that just means Jesus is in charge. And it even hints at what Luke's gospel will make clear, that he is in fact Lord of lords, King of kings, and God of very God. He is Savior. Why is that good news? He came to free you from your guilt. He is Christ. Why is that good news? He fulfills all of our longings and fulfills all God's covenant promises. He is Lord. Why is that good news? He came to inaugurate His kingdom and rule over you with tenderness, mercy, and power. As if the good news wasn't good enough. Do you see what the Father does next? in order to underscore its amazing power, he says, notice, or he sins, notice in verse 13, suddenly there was an angel, with the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host. That's basically a biblical way of saying what showed up was an angelic army, numbering thousands upon thousands. And this angel army doesn't show show up to declare war, do they? They show up to speak peace. Notice what they say, praising God in verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So there's this glory to God that's to ascend to the highest heavens because of the work that he has performed on earth, this work of peace. Do you know that you were born in sin? Do you know that as a result of your sin, you're an enemy of God? The Bible says that you're hostile towards him. You are alienated from God. But Jesus came to bring peace, even as Ephesians 2 says. Bring peace to those who are far off. He preached peace to those in his hearing. And he made peace, Colossians 1 says, by the blood of his cross. If you would but turn from your sin and trust in this cleansing flood of Christ's blood, you too might have peace. And even the angels... And this army that sings is interested in reminding us who gets the peace of Jesus Christ. As it says at the end of verse 14, it comes to those with whom God is pleased. And translations have always had a hard time capturing the true essence of of what the original text is speaking here. But it's quite clear that in the early century and when this was written in the Jewish culture of the day, this is simply language that 
spoke about God's sovereign election. That those who get his peace are those with whom he is pleased. His sovereign grace rests on them. It reminds us that nothing we do, nothing we have achieved can merit God's peace. And I hope that news would encourage some of you today, comfort some of you today, that the call of Christ is to simply come to rest and receive from him. But would it not also need to discomfort some of you? You can't earn it. You're not entitled to it. He gives it by free grace and sovereign love alone. Have you seen the humble Savior? Do you hear the peaceful army? I want to go now and join with the joyful shepherds. If you've been with us in our studies of Luke's gospel so far, you know that God likes to attach signs to his promises. And he gives a sign, notice in verse 12, to the shepherds. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So after the angelic army departs, we find out, if you notice down in verse 16, that the shepherds race off to Bethlehem to see the thing that had happened. And the first response that we get from the angel's birth announcement is one of witness. Notice verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. We're 12 months on, aren't we, from Advent 2016. So many of you, I'm sure, were here at last year's Advent celebrations. Have you shared the good news of Jesus Christ with someone this year? Have you spoken of the good news of great joy in the Savior who is Christ the Lord. Uh, Maybe you can join me in 2018 and just praying a simple prayer each day. Lord, help me to tell someone about Jesus today. I am convinced that if we as a church body would pray such a prayer daily with all sincerity and all consistency, we have every reason to believe that God would do something astonishing and surprising through us. Because Christ came to save sinners. He delights to save those who are far off and bring them peace. And he does it through his people, speaking of Jesus Christ. So we can mark it down, can we, even from this example of the shepherds, that those who truly see Christ eagerly speak of Christ. To truly see him is to overflow with the joy that you can't help but speak of him to those you come across. And the second response we get in our text is one of wonder. Look at verse 18 and 19. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. A couple of weeks ago, I listened to a sermon from Luke chapter 1 on Luke's portrayal of Mary's piety, her spirituality, her godliness. And at some point in the message, the preacher made the point that Mary is a model of female piety. And I remember thinking to myself as I was driving down the road, listening to it on the way home, I thought, you know, that's so right. But it's also so wrong. 
Because Luke's intent is that Mary is a model of Christian piety, one from which all of us should find a challenge, conviction, and much to learn. As she sees the Savior born, and what does she do? Treasures it, ponders it, stores it up in her heart. What do you tend to treasure most? One of the more profitable yet painful conversations you can have this week is to turn to your spouse, if you have one, maybe your children or grandchildren, a close friend, a trusted coworker, and say, what does my life say I treasure most? And maybe you'd be like me and await the answer with fear and trembling. Because is it not true that our lives so often announce we treasure something other than the gospel of Jesus Christ most. There's a response of witness. There's a response of wonder. Verse 20, there's the response of worship. You'll see as the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. In the fullness of time, God's Son came he was laid in a manger. It calls us to witness, wonder, and worship. My father first read the adventures of Sherlock Holmes to me at quite an early age. And I've always been somewhat captivated by Holmes' deductive reasoning ever since. And I remember one of the earliest short stories where Sherlock is speaking with his assistant, Dr. Watson. And they have this a strange interchange that reveals much about Holmes's methodology and, and brilliance. Watson has just sat down in Holmes's office, and Holmes says, Dr. Watson, you frequently walked up the stairs to my office, haven't you? And Watson says, yes, frequently. Holmes says, well, how many times? And Watson says, well, I don't know, hundreds of times, for sure. So Holmes says, well, how many steps are there on the staircase? And Watson says, how many steps? I surely don't know. And Holmes says, quite so. You have seen and yet you have not observed. You see, dear Watson, I have seen and observed and I know that there are 17 steps on the way up that staircase to my office. Do you not wonder if we often might find the affliction of the Watson syndrome in our own life? That we see yet don't observe? Could you even sit in here this morning, having seen the Christmas story dozens and dozens and dozens of times, yet never have truly observed the fullness of its majesty, the fullness of its beauty? J.R. Packer said in his classic book, Knowing God, it is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest, and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The more you think about it, the more surprising it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Do you see what is so fantastic? So full of wonder in this story. The infinite one became an infant baby. The book of Job says, he who binds the stars, constellations, and galaxies with his arms now finds those very arms 
bound in swaddling cloths. That he who spoke the world into existence by the word of his power now speaks the babble of a baby. He who holds all things together now needs the continual sustenance of his mother's milk. He who ruled from heaven with the earth as his footstool now finds his feet in a place where animals like to eat. Is it not good news what he did? Is it not wonderful why he did it? That he was wrapped in swaddling cloths so that by faith we might receive the royal robes of his righteousness. That he lay in a manger for only a brief amount of time so that we by faith might lay in the Father's presence for all eternity. That he joined in our earthly humiliation that we might gain his heavenly exaltation. That he was born under the law in order to redeem people from the curse of the law. That Jesus was made the lowest so that you and I, by faith, might be raised to glory in the highest. There was no room for him in the inn in Bethlehem. Is there room in your heart for this king? Have you come to him in faith? Do you know him? Do you believe in him? Do you trust him? Do you treasure him? My dear Christian friends, what a call it is unto us even this Christmas Eve to bear witness about the good news of great joy. To wonder at God's mercy in Jesus Christ. And to worship him because of his sovereign grace and love in sending his son in the fullness of time to be born to lay in a major and begin the work of salvation for sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you for your word, for the goodness of the gospel, for the obedience of your son. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us of our worldly preoccupations. You forgive us of our inattentiveness to the wonder that your son was born and lay in a manger and stir within us this morning new faith, new love, and new repentance that we might leave here walking in new obedience. So Lord, we pray that you would take my small words and by the power of the Spirit multiply them and in wonderful ways that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. And we do pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we want to continue now in, in worship and